I went to, um, I was down in Miami yesterday. I, I was asked to do a eulogy for my best friend's mom uh, who passed away. And um, obviously, because I wouldn't do a eulogy if she hadn't passed away. But um, it was an Episcopal church. It's really interesting to see the difference, the different way that people worship. And I, I realized that I'm not very good at singing hymns. So just an observation for you. I don't know why I said that. It has nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought I'd share. Anyway, it's how old people do Instagram is we just tell people like that. Anyway, last week we, uh, we started a new series called Free. For anyone who was not here, boy, you missed a lot of fun, but you, you missed this too. So I'm going to give you a brief review about what we talked about. If you'd like to go back and watch it, please do um, on our YouTube channel or our website. It's always up there. The video is up there posted, so you can take a look at that. And I'm going to go over what we talked about last week because this, this sermon series, this lesson is cumulative. And the stuff that we're looking at in this series is really important, but it's also really, really confusing. It's really hard to understand this stuff. Quite frankly, it's some of the most confusing teaching in the New Testament. And if you thought last week was confusing, in the words of Randy Bachman, you ain't seen n- n- nothing yet, okay? By the way, in the church world, we don't call it confusing. Um, we call it deep. But it's really just confusing. But it's important. So today I'm going to try to make it understandable, but you've been warned, okay? So here we go. Last week, we talked about how it is difficult to solve a problem when you don't know what's wrong to begin with which is why we have such a difficult time solving the problem of ourselves. We have a hard time fixing ourselves. Did you ever do something really dumb as a kid? You were going to answer yes before I added as a kid, weren't you? Yes. I kind of feel like if you're not currently a kid, which applies to most of you, you may have had a parent, as I did, who, upon finding out what dumb thing you did, asked you a very obvious question. You remember what they asked you? What's wrong with you? Remember that? I feel like, I feel like parenting's gotten a bit less aggressive, but I could be wrong. And I kind of feel like parents don't say things like that anymore, but maybe you do. I don't know. But do you remember when we were asked that question, how we usually answered? Remember that? It was like this. Mm-hmm. Right? How many parents of tweens or teens? Hmm. What'd you do? Why'd you do that? Right? Head down, hoodie up if they got one, right? Well, that's what it feels like when you're working on trying to better yourself, and you don't even know where to start. Like, I don't know. Like, you know something's wrong, but, but you just can't fix it because you don't know what is wrong. You don't know what it is. And it's not to say you don't think you know what it is. You don't have an idea of what the problem might be. But given the fact that you've never been successful at solving it, at fixing yourself, after having tried for so long, you might be at that point in your life where you're starting to realize maybe you don't know what your problem may be. So last week we looked at the New Testament. We read part of a letter from the Apostle Paul. Remember the Apostle Paul who wrote a large portion of the New Testament. A lot of what he wrote were letters. So he was writing this letter to the followers of Jesus who lived in Rome. Remember that Paul sat under Matthew and Mark, and he traveled around with Luke, and he also knew John, which meant he probably knew Mary. 
And as a result of knowing all these people, he knew the teachings of Jesus. So Paul took the teachings of Jesus, and he talked about them in a way that gives us a better understanding of what's wrong with us and what the solution to us is. So last week, we looked at the problem. And today, and for the next few Sundays, we're going to look at the solution. All right, so that's where we are. Let's pray, and we'll get on with it. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for the community you're building here at Hammock Street. Thank you for the work we're able to do. Thank you for the friendships that are being made. Thank you for making this certainly one of the highlights of our week. God, as we uh, study your word today, as we dig into the book of Romans a little bit more, we ask that you would help us see through the confusion and understand you better. We love you, God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start off today the same way we started last week with the Apostle Paul describing his experience with this problem. Here's what he said in Romans 7. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do, I do not want to do. This I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin living in me that does it. Can you relate to that? And when you think about it, it's pretty simple. We have to ask ourselves a question. Why do we keep doing those things? What is wrong with us? What has gotten into us? And last week, we looked at a passage where Paul explained to us why we have such a difficult time training ourselves, why we do things that destroy the parts of our life, that destroy our relationships, that destroy the way we view ourselves, that destroy our finances, and that destroy just so many other things in our lives. What is that all about? So Paul began by explaining that the first man who God created, Adam, was the progenitor of the human race, a fancy word for saying he's the first man. As such, the whole human race was born in Adam. And Paul explained how, since we all descend from Adam, we were all born in Adam. You were born in Adam. I was born in Adam. My wife, Beth, contrary to popular belief, was born in Adam. If you were here last week or saw the little video we posted, you know what that means. My sons, Dylan, Quinn, were born in Adam. Everybody was born in Adam. And Paul told us that sin entered the world through Adam. Remember in the Garden of Eden, Eve and Adam disobeyed God's command, and because of that, sin entered the world, and along with sin came death. Death always follows sin. Whenever there's sin, something will die behind it. And last week, we also saw how Paul used sin, not as a verb, but as a noun. So when Adam sinned, it was as if all of us sinned. We all came into this world with the guilt of sin, with the condemnation of sin, and we came into the world subject to the fact that sin rules over us. And Paul would say that the reason you keep doing the things that you don't want to do is that there's this battle raging inside of you. 
because of the sin that lives in you, because that sin that lives in you is your master. Much of the time, you have no option but to obey the sin that lives inside of you. Now, if you haven't been to church a lot or you haven't been to this kind of church a lot, it's possible you're not accustomed to talk like this. But if you look past this really uncomfortable kind of religious wording, it's hard to ignore. We do the things we do because we were born in Adam. And in Adam, there is a sin that rules over us. So Paul ended his explanation with an exclamation. An exclamation that sums up the futility, the futile feeling that we all have once we understand our problem. Once we understand that there's this sin in us and we can't get over it and it keeps making us do the things we don't want to do, we exclaim, and Paul exclaimed this for us, he said, what a wretched man I am. Do you say that about yourself? We don't use those words, but... We use similar words. I'm such a loser. I can't do anything right. Oh, my gosh. Right? That was Paul's way of telling us that the thing that he kept on doing but didn't want to do wasn't some small thing, but it was a significant thing, this sin that Paul kept on doing. He doesn't tell us what it was, but by his tone, we can tell that he was not referring to the fact that he couldn't stop taking post-it notes home from the office. I mean, that was not the sin Paul was committing. Oh, more post-it notes. What have I done? Lord, I'm so wretched. That wasn't it. Paul's act was something that presented him with a constant challenge. Paul's act made a rise in him a continuing battle that was motivated by the sin that was in him. And it was a battle that he would have changed anything to fix, to resolve. But Paul realized that there was just nothing he could do on his own. He felt so wretched, which led him to ask a question. What will rescue me? Now, if you're a Bible scholar, you picked up on the fact that I just lied to you. Paul did not ask, what will rescue me? It's what we ask. We always ask, what can I do What will rescue me from this sin? We, especially in this age of TED Talks and self-help gurus and self-help books and apps and videos, we always ask what we can do, what we can change, what we can watch, what we can listen to, what we can read, what insight we can gain that will save us, what new worldview we can adopt that will save us. And as you've probably already discovered, there is no what that will rescue you. There is no what that will save you. And it's here that Paul begins to introduce us to the solution for the sin that is in us, that controls our behavior, that leads us to the point where we might be inclined to cry out, oh, what a wretched man, oh, what a wretched woman I am. There's no what that will save you. But there is a who. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then Paul immediately answered his own question. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that's a weird phrasing. I understand that. 
but it's important to know it because throughout the New Testament, we read words like that. We read words like through Christ or in Christ or through him or Jesus says in me. And we don't really stop to consider what exactly does that mean? But Paul took the time to explain just how meaningful those phrases and and that understanding really are. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's here Paul begins to introduce us to the solution to us. The solution isn't a what. The solution isn't a thing that we can read or learn or say or even do. Paul introduces us to the answer for why we can't do the things we want to do and why we can't stop doing the things we don't want to do. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So for the rest of this morning and then for the couple weeks after that, we're going to talk about the way that Paul described this who that connects with the do. Because if we can get the who to connect with the do, maybe we won't do the things that we don't want to do. Does this sound like a Dr. Seuss book at this point? Paul told us that's how he found victory over the things that controlled his life that he tried to overcome on his own for so many years. Now, because this stuff is so complicated, we'll start with an executive summary, and then we'll jump into the verses. And I'm hoping that doing it like that will help everybody to track along in case we get bogged down along the way, and then we'll wrap up with an illustration that I I hope will help us all land in the same place. So here's our summary for today. If you know what an executive summary is, when you're you're working for somebody and there's something important, they've given you an assignment, and they go, all right, how you doing on the assignment? They, They want to know the answer. They don't want to read the nine pages of how you got there. So the executive summary is the answer. This is right up front. So right up front in today's text, Paul's going to tell us that just as the single unrighteous act of one man, Adam, ensures that you were born a slave to sin, the single righteous act of another man, Jesus, by his death on the cross and his resurrection, frees you from the power of sin. The one single act of Jesus can take you out of Adam, remember my bowls, and put you, I'm going to do this carefully, into Christ, okay, which sets you free from the power of sin. So today, Paul's going to explain something to us that some people are going to have a hard time believing. Some of you are going to hear what we're about to read, and you're going to go, I didn't know that. And you're going to say, I didn't know that, because you didn't know that. That's why you're going to say that. And that's why Paul begins this explanation by saying, don't you know? The truth of these verses is absolutely liberating, which is why we're calling this series free and why we're calling this message, Now You Know. So let's turn to Romans 6. If you have a Bible, you can open to Romans 6 or your app. Trust me, I'm putting it up on the screen. The version we're using on the screen is the New International Version. Use any version you like. Ready? There we go. Romans 6, 2. We are those who have died to sin. Now, I want to start here by taking note that Paul was talking here to believers. So if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, Paul is talking to you. He's talking to us. We believers are those people who have died to sin. So Paul asks a question from here. 
he says, well, how can we live in sin any longer? If we've died to sin, how can we live in sin any longer? Now, if you're anything like I am, you already know the answer to that question. It's quite easy for us to continue to live in sin because we do it every day. We're really good at it. We live in sin all the time. But Paul says, how? Because we don't have to do anything to live in sin. It just happens. That's our human nature. That's our sin nature. And, and, and then we ask God yet again to forgive us. We keep going back to, God, please, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And then we're good to go for another round. And to that, Paul would say, stop, hold up. I'm not asking how you do it. I know how you do it. I just got done telling you I used to do the same thing. What I'm asking is why. What I'm asking is why would you, who have been freed from sin, continue to live in sin? Why would you keep doing that thing that you don't want to do? Why would you keep treating that person that way that you don't want to treat them? Why would you continue to live like that? Why would you continue to abuse your body like that? If you've been freed from the power of sin, why do you continue to live under its power? Why do you keep on saying yes to a master who is no longer your master? And what do we usually answer in response to that question? We usually answer this. Oh. Right? We in response to which Paul continues, or don't you know? Well, don't you know? Paul, we already established we don't know, so please tell us. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We go, oh boy, we didn't know that. But now we do know it. But we really still don't know it because it's confusing. What does that even mean? What does it even mean? Well, here's what it means. When we see the word baptized, we typically think water, right? Don't most people think water? In fact, we're gonna, I told you we're going to be down at the beach this Saturday, also in March, baptizing people in the water. So we think water. But the Greek word for baptism, which is the word baptizo, is a very common word, actually. And it has a number of applications that don't only include water. The word baptizo in English means to put something in something. That's what it means. So we think baptism, we put a person in the water. Baptism, got it. So here's what Paul is saying. saying. He's saying, don't you know? They didn't know. We don't know. Don't you know that you were baptized into his death? That's why I've moved the balls from the Adam bowl being in sin over to the Christ bowl being in sin. Christ. Don't you know that you were baptized into Jesus's death? When you were in Adam, what was true of Adam is true of you. You were separated from God. You were lost and you were a prisoner to the power of sin. Sin was your master. And even though it wasn't fair, and even though it wasn't your fault, it was the situation. Now, I hope most of you have realized by this point in life Just because something is unfair doesn't mean that it's unreal. Haven't you figured that one out? And we see things in our world all the time that aren't fair, but they're very real, notwithstanding. Something can be absolutely unfair and true at the same time. You and I were born condemned by God because you and I are related to Adam. It's not fair, but it's true. 
don't you know that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were taken out of Adam and you were placed into Christ? And don't you know in that moment, just as what was true of Adam was true of you, in the very same way, what is true of Christ is now true of you. Because when you came to faith in Christ, you were placed into Christ. So when he died, it's as if you died too. Because you were in Christ, and then all of the benefits of his death are true for you. Did you not know that? You were baptized into his death. We didn't know that. So Paul continued, verse 4. Though we were therefore, we were therefore buried with him, with Jesus, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. All of the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection have been applied now to us because we are in Jesus. Now, if you've been a Christian for a little while, you, you already believe this part of it. You already believe that somehow, because you asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin, you get to go to heaven when you die. You guys have heard that before, right? And that is part of the message of the gospel. You were taken out of Adam, you were taken out of condemnation, and you were placed into Christ. But what you didn't know, and this is why Paul is fleshing this out, is that not only does it apply to after we die, but it applies to this life as well. How do we know that? Paul continues, verse 6. For we know that our old self, so Paul next explains that there's this old self and a new self. The old self was the you in Adam. Your new self is the you in Christ. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Once you were placed into Christ, what is true of Christ, including his his crucifixion, is true of you. You were crucified with Christ. He was crucified You were in him, so you were crucified with him. The reason that you'll go to heaven is because you're in Christ. And the reason that you get to live a new life now, here on earth, is the very same reason, because you are in Christ. Verse 6 continues. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Here's what that means. It means that, The part of you that has been ruled by sin is no longer under the power of sin, is no longer under the authority of sin. Now, this might be the place where we all scratch our heads and go, Paul, what are you talking about? That is such a weird thing to say. Well, here's the whole verse. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We should no longer live as if we're slaves to sin. You should no longer say yes to sin because you're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer under the power. You're no longer under the control of sin. Paul was explaining, you are not a slave of sin because when you were taken out of Adam and placed into Christ, at that moment, sin lost its grip on you, lost its power over you. And here's how we know that's true. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Think about that. After you die, you'll never sin again. Isn't that comforting? Once you die, sin's not going to tempt you anymore. 
Once you die, you'll never be tempted to eat too much again, ever. You'll never be tempted to look too long at that thing you're not supposed to be looking at, ever. You'll never be vengeful once you're dead. Dead people are just chill. They really are. Never vengeful. Once you die, you're free from the power of sin. And when you were placed in Christ, everything about Christ's death was applied to you and does apply to you. When when you were placed into Christ, when you died in Christ, you died to the slave master's sin. And then Paul said, the death he died, the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. That means that Jesus' sacrifice happened one time for everybody, and Jesus' sacrifice happened so that no further sacrifices would ever be necessary again. And Jesus' sacrifice happened specifically for you and specifically for me. So we'll never need to offer another sacrifice for sin again. One and done. It's over. Once you're placed in Christ, you died to sin too. But the life he lives, he lives to God. All right, your head spinning yet? That's why we're spending four weeks on this. Let's pause here, make sure we're tracking. So far, Paul's told us that there was this man named Adam, and we're all physically descended from him. Got that? We talked about that last week. And as such, we're all born in Adam. So when Adam sinned, the consequences of Adam's sin were applied to us, meaning that, in that sense, we were born in sin also. And because we're in sin, sin has a power over us. And because what was true of Adam is true of me and you, that's how that works. Okay, so far so good. You with me? All right, now, when you place your faith in Jesus and you recognize what Jesus did on the cross, he did for you. Once you realize that, made that realization, recognize what happened, you're taken out of Adam and you're placed into Christ. That means what was true of you is no longer true of you. When you're in Christ, you're a different person. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And because Christ died, by virtue of the fact that you're in Christ, you were placed into his death as well. And because he died to sin once for all, that means that you too died to sin, meaning that sin is no longer your master. Sin is no longer your owner. Sin no longer actually controls you unless, unless you said yes to sin, unless now you allow sin to be your master. You got that? So now guess whose fault it is? Your fault. Sin's no longer your master. Ouch, man, this is harsh. So Paul follows all of this up with the application of the text. So we're going to look at the application, and then we'll actually pick up there next week. We're not done yet, but here's the application. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. In the same way that Christ died to sin once for all, you are to count yourselves dead to sin once for all. It's done. So why would I consider myself dead to sin? Because I'm in Christ. And the death that he died, he died to sin. He lived a sinless life. And then he allowed death to kill him. And then he came back to life and said, now you're in me. And just as sin was not his master, sin is not your master. And it's not my master. Just as Christ's death overcame the power of sin and demonstrated the fact that he overcame the power of sin, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. Because, verse 14, sin shall no longer be your master. Did you hear it? That's the solution. That's the solution we've been looking for. Because you're in Christ. When you're in Christ, you're dead to sin. And because you're dead to sin, sin is no longer your master. Sin is no longer in charge of you. This is huge. If you're in Christ, sin is no longer your master. In fact, why don't you say this together with me? Ready? Sin is no longer my master. When you become a follower of Jesus, sin ceases to be your master. And the ramifications of that fact are massive. I've heard Andy analogize it like this. I want you to think about an international adoption. Okay? Imagine a child living in an orphanage overseas. Now, when a child lives in an orphanage, there are many layers of authority over that child, right? The government of the country, the government of the state or province where the orphanage is located, the governing structure of the orphanage, who's the president, who runs the place, the, the employees of the orphanage, they're all in power, in authority over the child. And as a result, every single day, that child's life is completely dictated by the rules and by the laws of the national government or the regional government or the institution or the people who run the place. And those various entities, think about what they do for a child under their care. They tell the child when to wake up. They tell the child what to wear, what to eat, what to drink, where to go, what to do, when to bathe, when to go to sleep. I think total control. Those entities have complete and total control over the child's life. But then, with the stroke of a pen, and I recognize that it's not quite this easy, but I'm simplifying it for the illustration. With the stroke of a pen from an official or a judge... With the stroke of a pen, the adoption is finalized. In the blink of an eye, the child goes from orphan to family member. The child goes from being alone to being a part of a family. The child goes from knowing one world, one where love is tough to find, to being a part of a new family, where love is the whole reason for the connection. For that child, from that moment on, everything is different. Again, I know this is oversimplified, but stay with me. With the stroke of a pen, that government, that state or province, that orphanage, those employees in the orphanage, as wonderful as they all might be, with the stroke of a pen, they lose all authority over that child. All authority. And they can still write the child, and they can text the child, and they can even show up at the child's door. But after that adoption, mom or dad has the right to say, "Uh uh-uh. You have no control over my child. You have no authority over my child. This child belongs to me now. And here's what Paul was saying. When you were taken out of Adam and placed into Christ, you got a new identity. You got a new family. You got a new destiny. And when it comes to your experience, your earthly experience, your experience here on earth, sin has lost its authority over you. You may be saying yes to sin ever since you became a Christian, You may have been saying yes to sin for your whole life because the pull was so strong. And maybe you felt like you didn't have a choice and found yourself in this awful battle of, I don't want to, but I want to, but I don't want to, but I want to, but I don't want to. We're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks, but here's what you need to know. Now and for the rest of your life, whether you ever do anything about it or not, sin is not your master. With the stroke of a pen, let's say, 
Sin has lost all authority over you. And you not only have permission, you have the encouragement of the God who loves you to say to sin, and you can say it out loud, sin is not my master. You can say to sin, sin, you're not my master. You can nag me, sin. You can push me. You can taunt me. You can tempt me. But sin, you need to know something. I'm in Christ. And when he died, I died. I died, and the death that he died, he died to the power of sin. So I died to the power of sin. Sin is not my master. Can you imagine living a life like that? Can you imagine how powerful that would feel the next time you're faced with your old familiar sin? Instead of giving into it, you can turn to your sin and go, No, not today. I'm free. I'm free from you, sin. You are not my master. So here's what we're going to do this week. I want you to figure out your version of that mantra and repeat it to yourself every day. I know that's silly, but I want you to do it. You know, studies are saying that if you repeat things out loud to yourself, your brain doesn't really differentiate between you're hearing it from somebody else or you're hearing it from you. So when you say it, you start to believe it. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have to immediately change your behavior. And I'm not saying that you just have to quit sinning all at once. I'm not saying you can't do it. If you could do it, knock yourself out. That's great. But I'm asking you to take a step. I'm asking you to recognize something that maybe you've never recognized before. In those moments of temptation, in those moments where you're overwhelmed by loneliness or or lust or anger or despair or jealousy or rage or vengeance, whatever overwhelms you, in those moments that you find yourself heading down that old, familiar path to your sin, I ask you that on your way there, you just take a beat. Just pause for a second, just long enough to whisper out loud, sin is not my master. I'm dead to sin, but I'm alive to God. Because listen up, when this becomes your new approach to life, when this becomes the new lens through which you view all of your life, everything changes. Your family relationships change, your marriage changes, your relationships with your kids and your friends and your habits. Everything changes. The habits you want to have, your discipline, the way you take care of yourself, the way you keep yourself healthy, the way that you think, all of it changes for the better. Why? Because when you're in Christ, you're not the person you used to be. And there's no point in living the way you used to live because sin is no longer your master. Let's say it quietly together one more time. Ready? Sin is not my master. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the answer, the solution to ourselves. Thank you for taking us down the road of understanding to get what this means, this strange celestial transaction where we leave the way that we were born in sin in Adam and we're reborn in Christ. God, help us to remember that we don't need to say yes to sin ever again. God, thank you for this teaching. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.